Father, thank you so much for the blessing of your word and for the chance that we have again to be right back in it, Lord. There are so many intricate pieces of information, but beyond that, Lord, such a blessing just being in these pages. And Father, it never fails that when we open up the Bible and begin to study and read, even, Lord, even without explanation, just to hear the words come off the page does something to us. It is no wonder that this book is your book, it's your word. Well, Father, as we study these things tonight, I pray that you'll keep our minds really sharp and on top of things as we walk through these next couple of chapters together. And help us, Lord, to tune in to the big picture, to what you're really doing here as we apply it to our own lives as well and learn from the life of your servant Jacob. Thank you again for these words. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and bless our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jacob was a schemer, as you know, a deceiver, a con artist who outwitted his own brother for his family birthright, and he outwitted his father for his own brother's blessing. But at the age of 77, like we saw last week, Jacob got saved. Now, I am absolutely convinced of this. At the end of chapter 28, you see, through this chapter, starting about verse 10, Jacob has this dream where the father comes to him and speaks to him and, and draws him in, which is how the father works. Now, in verse 18, we see there are three things we mentioned at the end of last week's study. We went through them really quickly. Three things that show us this, this salvation, this saving of Jacob. And the first one is we see that Jacob begins to worship. Which is always what happens when someone falls in love with the Lord, when someone actually gets saved, they cannot wait to worship. They love to worship. Worship becomes such a, a part of their hunger. It might not even be that way before, but man, the second a person gets called, the second a person is saved, they love to worship. And, and Jacob is no exception. Verse 18 tells us after this amazing dream, Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured, poured oil on its top. The pillar was once a pillow, now a pillar of worship. The stone that his head was laying on, this, this picture of discomfort and, and trouble in his life, now becomes a picture of worship as Jacob is saved. Secondly, if you look back, actually no, look ahead, I guess it's verse 19. It tells us he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. And you may recall last week Luz means separated, but Bethel means house of God. Jacob moved from a place of separation in his life into the house of God. Jacob is getting saved here. And it goes further, it says Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Nowadays we pray something like this, Lord, become my Lord. Father, forgive me of my sins. I confess them to you. Be my Savior. Come in and take over my life. And that's what Jacob is saying here. He's asking God to be his God. And verse 22 says, This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And this is interesting. Jacob is first saved, and then he begins to work. He begins to work. Always remember, salvation leads to work. Not the other way around. Work does not lead to salvation. Salvation leads to work. In other words, you don't work your way up to that place of being just good enough for God. You don't work your way into God's good graces you don't show God what a good person you is and then he says alright yeah I guess I'll let you in no he saves you first 
And the works we do as believers in Christ are a result of being saved. You'll see that very clearly tonight. But right off the bat, Jacob is now worshiping, setting up the pillar, and, and now he's committing himself. Man, 10% of anything you give me, God, it's yours. 10% of everything. This wasn't just a tithe off of his income. This was a tithe of anything that was his. Anything God gave him, the first 10% went to the Lord. He's working. Not to save himself. That already happened. But salvation leads to work. That's why James would say later in James 2.19 that your faith without works is dead. Now show me your faith by your works. How do I know you really believe in God? How do I know that you've been saved? Because you're living it out. If a person says, oh, I'm saved, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ, but they have no evidence of that in their life, one has to question, were they ever really saved in the first place? Salvation leads to work, not work to salvation. Verse 1 of chapter 29, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. And we saw last week that the word went there is literally lifted up his feet and, and implies this sense of excitement, this happiness. He's got happy feet. Jacob is moving out. His journey is now one of purpose. He has some meaning. He has met God. He's a saved man. And so he's on his way. So he begins by worshiping. And then we see him working. And finally we see his walk is lifted up. It's blessed. Life is going to be hard for Jacob down the road here. But he still has a new walk with the Lord. Now again, the wonderful thing here is that Jacob's salvation came to him. Jacob didn't go out and set up the pillar and say, God of my father, Isaac, are you there? I want you to be my God. And he laid down on the pillow and God came to him. And that's how it works. That's always how salvation happens. We might like to think otherwise. It's not the case. God comes to us. John chapter 6 verse 44. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus says, that's the pattern. That's the structure. God comes to you, and then you are drawn to me. And that's so important to understand. And you need to understand that going into tonight's study as well. Because we're going to see some things happen in Jacob's life as he enters into this place of salvation. Folks, don't miss this. There's always more in God's program than just being saved. We can focus so much on that moment of salvation, but gang, that's the tip of the iceberg. It's the beginning. God has so much more in mind for us than the day or the moment of our salvation. We've wondered before, we've asked the question in here, why, when people accept Christ, doesn't he just pluck us right up out of the world immediately and just take us home? I mean, wouldn't that be the easiest way to do it? Lord, I accept you. Boom, they're gone. I mean, you would never have any churches because no one would be there. But why not just have it that way? We, we, we're drawn to Jesus. We accept him. We believe. And we're out of here. Now, that would be my favorite way of doing it. I'd like to see it done that way. Save me a whole lot of trouble. Save us all a lot of trouble in this world. Why not do it that way? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. A hard verse. A verse that I've wondered about and heard mistranslated, mis misspoken, mistaught all my life. Philippians 2, verse 12. Paul says this, and listen closely to these words. So then, my beloved, 
Just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, and here are the words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. I heard that for years. And people would say, see, you have to work for your salvation. You have to work it out with fear and trembling. And I always wondered, how does that jive with grace? How is it that Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, hey, it's by grace you've been saved, and this is not from yourselves. You have nothing to do with it. It is a gift of God so no one can boast. He says that in Ephesians. But then when he writes here the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippian church, he says, no, you guys work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does this mean, Paul? He goes on to say, and this almost also seems like a contradiction, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, which is it, Paul? Am I supposed to work out my salvation and save myself? Or is it God who's at work in me? Which one is it? Well, this is one of those times where when we see a phrase like, work out your salvation, we hear that in English, we jump to an immediate conclusion. The word work out is actually just one word. It's katergatsomai. Everybody say that with me. Katergatsomai. Yeah, nice try. It's, uh, <laughs> it's made up of two Greek words shoved together. The word kata, which, which is a primary article. It may not mean anything to you, but the bottom line is it's a little word that is attached to other words, and it usually means through or about or after. But when it's combined with other words, what kata means is intensity. It adds intensity to the word that it's combined with. Makes it, you know, stronger. So you add this intensity, kata, to ergatsomai. Ergatsomai literally means to work or to be engaged in. Now understanding that, what Paul is saying, we could translate it, katergatsomai, to be intensely engaged in. Paul is saying, be intensely engaged in your salvation. Be involved in the process. Don't work for it because you can't earn it. But man, once you have it, work it out. In fact, work out is, is not a bad translation if you think of it in terms of a gym. Work out your salvation. Pump the iron of Christ. That's the way to think about it. What, you're laughing because there's not much here? Is that the... Did I miss something there? Work out your salvation because salvation is not static. I love this. Some of you have heard this uh, comedian named Brian Regan. (laughs) And he talks about going into a gym and you feel like an idiot the first time you go to a gym. You know, because you don't know what's going on. And he always hands you a clipboard. And you can tell all the people in the gym who are brand new because they got the clipboard. You know, they're doing this. And there's all the real real worker outers who are there without the clipboard. They just go right to the machines. But you're there with your clipboard and your black socks on, you know, and trying to figure it out. And he says, you know, I I got into this one machine. I didn't know what it did, but I got in there and kind of started moving things around. You know, and the guy came up to me and said, look, uh, sir, would you mind getting out of the painter scaffolding for us? We'd appreciate that. It's really good. But working out your salvation is like going to the gym of God, God's gym. It's getting involved in the process. It's pushing hard. It's not a a a, a static, sorry, it's not a static deal. It's a dynamic deal. It's a constantly working deal. It does not stop when you say, Jesus, come into my life. Boom. Oh, that's it. All right. Now I can go about my business and know I'm headed home. No. God wants you to work out your salvation. Labor in love. Practice prayer. Study the scriptures. Develop discipline. Do these things. 
Now you guys are here tonight because this is the choice you've made to work out your salvation. That, that's part of what you're doing. You've just come into the gym tonight. The gym in the barn. And we open up the scriptures and we begin to work out. And I guarantee you every week you walk out of here with a little more spiritual muscle. That's what Paul's talking about. Work out in your salvation. Be engaged in the process. Well tonight we're going to watch Jacob get engaged. He's going to be engaged with a woman and then another woman and then a couple more women. And we're going to see him engaged in kind of a battle of con artists with his uncle Laban. But in this whole process of his engagement, what God is doing behind the scenes is engaging Jacob in his salvation. And it's very cool to watch and very cool to see. Now we gave a, an outline, a working outline for eight chapters or so here. Chapter 28, we talked about last week the saving of Jacob. And we just saw that. Jacob has this dream. He's saved. Boom. God comes to him. And his life begins to turn in amazing ways. And for the first time, he calls God his God. Not his father's God, but he says, you will be my God. Jacob is saved. In chapters 29 through 32, which we'll get into a bit tonight, the subduing of Jacob. For he began saved, but he needs to be subdued, as do you and I. Number three in our little outline, chapters 33 and 34, the separating of Jacob. The separating of Jacob. And finally in chapter 35, the sanctifying of Jacob. Sanctifying of Jacob. You all got that down or do I need to repeat it again? I'm just going to go forward. Good. Verse 1 of chapter 29. Listen to this. This is another one of those great little pictures that will remind you of something I think right off the bat. Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east and looked and saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it for from that well they watered the flocks. Now a stone on the mouth of the well was large. Check this out. When all the flocks gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Now something that immediately jumped out at me here as, as I read, what, what, is, what does a well remind you of in Scripture? What do you think of when you see a well in Scripture? Or, or, or water coming from a well? I tend to think of the Holy Spirit. I think of the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John 7:38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John said that by this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. But look at the picture here. The sheep are gathered around the well. And there's a huge stone in front of the well. And for the sheep to get watered, the stone has to be rolled away. It has to be moved. In the same way, in our lives, for the sheep to be well watered, for the sheep to have the living water flowing out of us, the stone had to be rolled away. Jesus put it this way. John 16, 7, he said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's to your benefit. Now from a human, physical, fleshly perspective, wouldn't it be to our benefit to have Jesus as the pastor of the Bridge Christian Fellowship? If he was here every Sunday, every Wednesday teaching us, tell you what, if Jesus was here, we'd be here seven days a week, 24-7, just to listen to him teach. It would be awesome. But there's a problem. If Jesus were here at the bridge teaching, 
it would grow massively. People from all over Whidbey Island, Fidalgo Island, all of the islands, northern Washington, southern Washington, all of the northwest would begin to flock in this direction. But at some point, Jesus couldn't reach them all. Not in his fleshly form. And he could speak to 5,000 at one point. 7,000 at another point. Up on hills, moving about Judea. He could speak to large masses of people, but he could not touch. He could not pastor. He could not minister to every individual. Because in his flesh, Jesus, just like us, was limited. But he says something amazing here to his apostles. If I go away, it's better for you. If I leave here, something miraculous, amazing will happen. Because what's going to happen, we'll roll back the stone. And the well will begin to gush forth the Holy Spirit. And now, not only will the Holy Spirit be on me, Jesus speaking, but he will be on every single one of you. And the water will flow. And the well will remain open. Folks, when living water flows out of the sheep, amazing results happen. Not only do we work out our own salvation, but we become instruments of salvation to other sheep as well. It's because Jesus left that we are able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be waterers of this world. Jesus said, John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. You're going to do more together by the power of the Spirit than I could do in this world, said Jesus, the Son of God. Wow. Let me ask you something. Do we believe that? I mean, do we really believe that today? Do we believe that this particular little fellowship can do more to reach people than if Jesus himself were here right now? Well, Jesus said, yeah, that's the case. Because instead of my spirit just being my spirit, my spirit will be poured out on all of you. And every one of you as you work out your salvation, will touch other people in ways you have no idea. In ways you will not even be aware of. Well, back to Jacob. Now, he, he's traveled a long way. He's traveled actually some 400 miles from Beersheba to Haran. And he must be relieved to discover at this point that he's at his journey's end. Look at verse 4. He comes up, he sees these guys at the well, and he says to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, we're from Haran. And he said, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yeah, we know him. Oh, they know him. Laban's got a reputation, I'm sure. He was Jacob's mother's brother, his uncle. And Laban, as you're going to see, is quite a character. As a matter of fact, schemer, con man Jacob will meet his match in Laban. This guy knows how to turn a con. Verse 6. Jacob said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well and then we water the sheep. You see what Jacob's doing right here is he's trying to get them to go away. He sees Rachel coming and he's like, Ah. Hey guys, don't you have something better to do? Can, can you maybe make yourself busy with the flocks over here? I've I got to talk to someone. Now, can, can you move, move out of the way here? And they're not buying. As a matter of fact, I think, personal opinion, don't back this up by anything, but I think all the guys are at the well right there because Rachel was coming. 
I do, because of what the Bible is going to tell you about Rachel. She is a babe. She is outrageously foxy, and all the guys are at the well looking for Rachel to come. Jacob's trying to get her to move. They don't move. Okay, so here she comes. This is great. Verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now watch what Jacob does. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up. Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob, not Esau. This is Jacob. Remember Jacob stay in the tent and knit some things and be around the house with mama? He is now moving into this. this uh, he's being a stud. He's working out. Not his salvation. He's working out. His passion is what's going on. So he rolls this stone away. And then, verse 11, Jacob kissed Rachel. All right on, Jacob. You're making your move. And, and it's good to read this because if we had never read this, the prior statements about Jacob and how he lived his life might have left us to wonder a little bit about where Jacob's coming from. Okay? But he kisses Rachel, and then he blows it. Now, I'm speaking purely from a man's perspective here. He tries to get rid of the other guys. That's always a good male move. He tries to show some strength. Good male move. He kisses her another good male move. And then he lifted up his voice and he wept. Jacob. Someone's got to talk to this boy about dating. This is not what you do. He's weeping. Oh, I'm so happy that I've met you. This is so wonderful. Great up. And Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. He was doing so well until he started to weep. Well, Jacob's an emotional guy. Obviously not afraid to show it. And obviously there's something going on here in Jacob's heart. He sees Rachel and he is blown away. Absolutely off of his feet. Verse 13. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob... His sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. And then he related to Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Why is Laban so enthusiastic? Because you may recall, Laban's already had dealings with this family. And Laban knows something. The family of Jacob or of Isaac, of Abraham... This family's a cash cow. This family means some income. He is really excited to see Jacob here. Remember in Genesis 24:53, the servant brought out. Remember Abraham sent his servant to get Isaac a bride, and he comes to Laban's household and it tells us the servant brought out articles of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah, and he gave precious things to her brother Laban and her mother. Laban has benefited from this family before, and he's going to benefit from this family again. Now, notice this. He calls Jacob his bone and his flesh. And he's more right than not. These two are two peas in a pod. Okay? Laban is a worker of con games. He's going to play some con here on, on Jacob in just a few moments. That's pretty amazing. Verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative... Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. And here we get into it. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak. 
<laughs> you know, the Bible just tells it like it is. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. What is this saying? Folks, the curtain is opening right now to a drama of epic proportions, of soap operatic proportions. This is like turning on Channel 7 in the middle of the afternoon. That's what's happening right here. You got three players in this drama, and Rich Mullins in a song called Jacob and Two Women writes it perfectly. He says, Jacob, he loved Rachel, and Rachel, she loved him, and Leah was just there for dramatic effect. That's how this plays out. Jacob sees Rachel and wants her. But Rachel falls for Jacob as well. But somehow, because of Laban, Leah gets thrown into the mix, and we're going to have a messy situation. Leah, the older daughter, whose eyes were weak. Literally, folks, what that means is she was weak in outward appearance. As a matter of fact, you could probably put it another way. You could say when you looked at her, it, it hurt your eyes. <laughs> I mean, oh, wow, Leah, put the veil back on. That's enough of that. And she was not a good-looking woman here. Not pretty to behold. Rachel, however, and, and we know this because there's a contrast here. Leah's eyes were weak. Leah was nothing to look at, but Rachel... The younger sister was beautiful of form and face. The word beautiful is used twice in the Hebrew in this verse. She had a beautiful body and she had a beautiful face. She was drop dead gorgeous. She was a knockout. So Jacob loved her. I mean it was lust at first sight. He looked at her and said, this is what I want in a woman. Now understand, there is something subtle that happens here. Verse 18 said, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. There's a subtle change that happens that you wouldn't see again unless you were looking at the words. Jacob loved Rachel. That's the word Ahab. Ahab, which means affection. He had affection for her. He was drawn to her. But it's somewhat physically driven. However, by the end of the phrase, just two verses later, it tells us that he served seven years, which seemed like a few days because of his love for her. Love the second time. Now it's changed. It's Ahabah, which is Ahab, but it's now the feminine form. So he loved her, he desired her, he had affection for her at first, but now over seven years there's a change happening. Lust is turning into love. Desire is becoming tempered by, by a wish for intimacy, a, a personal attraction to her beyond the physical here. Jacob's lust is changing. And there's one thing that does it to this. There's one thing that's making this happen. Time. The Bible tells us very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient. Love is patient. Lust is passionate. Lust wants it now. Love says, I'll wait because love knows it will only get better. Love waits. Lust wants. And Jacob waited for Rachel for seven years. And guys, he's already waited a long time to get married as he is. He's in his late 70s at this point. This man has been without woman for over 70 years. It's a long time for any man. And he wants her, but he's willing to wait. And as he waits, the love gets better. Now, to those of you who are not married, let me just say this. I, I have a line that I want my daughter to learn and memorize. 
I want her to have this so well practiced because I know she's going to be asked by some jerk kid to do things that she shouldn't do. And I want her to come back with, if you love me, you'll wait for me. Oh, come on. Come on. I love you. I, I mean, what I want you to do with me is only because I love you. Yeah, if you really love me, you'll wait. You're not going to pressure me. Because love is patient. Folks, what likely began as lust in the heart of Jacob transformed over seven years into a love that would last. Those seven years flew by because as Jacob waited, as he was patient, the love grew. Anyone who's been married more than a few years understands this principle. The further down the line you go into a marriage, the deeper it gets, the better it becomes. And when you hit those rough times, when you work through them, when you work out your marriage in the hard times, you come out the other side even better and better. And I don't know how to say this any more strongly. Again, to those of you who are not married right now, wait for it. Wait for it. Make the guy, ladies, wait for it. Guys, if there are any guys who are not married here, stop pushing. <laughs> First Corinthians 13.4. Why is it always the guys that get picked on? Well, I'm a guy. I know how guys think. Okay? 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Now listen to this. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love is patient. Now what's going on here in these seven years is more than meets the eye. For not only is Jacob waiting for Rachel, but God is working on Jacob. Just by the simple fact that Jacob is willing to work and wait for his bride gives God an opportunity to work on his heart. This is an example of someone working out his salvation. He's functioning in the plan of God. He doesn't grab Rachel, throw her on the back of his camel, and take off across the desert because he wants her now. He works for her. He waits for her. And God, folks, wants the same from you and me. He wants us to learn how to move from lust to love. He wants us to move from carnality to commitment, from desire to devotion. And this could be in any number of, of areas in our lives. To move from desire to devotion. There may be things that we just want right now and God says, you know what? Why don't you wait on that? Why don't you spend the time devoted to me? Growing, working out your salvation. Verse 21. So we see Jacob waiting. He, he served seven years for Rachel. They seem like a few days. And now Laban, the con artist, kicks in. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. And so it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> look! The word behold, look! It's Leah! Oh no! Something's wrong! Something's terribly wrong! And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, 
It is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Listen to this, folks. This is unbelievable. Comedy in Scripture. Comedy and tragedy mixed together. I mean, Jacob, it's his wedding night. And as the custom of the day, his wife, his bride, who he thinks is Rachel, is covered head to toe in a veil. He can't see her face or her weak eyes or her face that would make his eyes weak. He can't see any of that. It's also a wedding that happens at night. So after the wedding, they're, you know, shuffled off into the tent, laughing, laughing all the way. And they go in and consummate the marriage. And the next morning, <laughs> Jacob rolls over. <sighs> What's this? And you gotta wonder what was going through his head. Okay, did they just pull the switcheroo this morning for a little joke? Was I with her all night? Laban, why did you do this? Now, what's interesting is Jacob doesn't argue the point after asking the question. Why'd you do this to me? It's not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. And I think the phrase firstborn must have hit Jacob like a brick. Because he had practiced deceit regarding another firstborn. He didn't have a leg to stand on. He had deceived his own father about his other brother who was the true firstborn to get the birthright and the blessing. And now, what, what goes around comes around, folks. The Bible has a more specific way to say it. Paul says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, this he will also reap. And it's coming back around on Jacob. The same exact type thing is now happening to him. Now he is the one deceived. He is the one hurt by it. So Laban goes on, verse 27, Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Now we talked about this on Sunday a couple of weeks ago, but let me just highlight this for you, especially students of prophecy. You'll be aware of this. When he says, Complete the week. That word week is the first mention of the word Shavuah, which means a, a, a figure of sevens. In the same way that we would say dozen or that we would say a heptad, that's what it means. Complete the heptad of this first one. Complete the week of this first one. Now, Jacob hadn't been working for, her for, a, for Rachel for a week. He had been working for seven years, and the week referred to a period of seven years. And it's a strong proof text, as the, the first mention of this word in the Bible, a strong proof text for Daniel chapter 9, that we studied a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, where Daniel talks about, or the angel gives Daniel, 70 weeks, 70 Shavuah, for the people of Israel. And those 70 weeks are broken out. As we studied, the first 69 weeks, 483 years literally, because the weeks are seven-year periods, 483 years that were ordained for Israel have happened with pinpoint historical accuracy. But the last week has not happened. The last week is yet to come. The last week, the 70th week of Daniel, is called in Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 6, the day of Jacob's trouble. The day of Jacob's trouble. Why? Because it is a day for Jacob. Who's Jacob? Israel. God is going to change Jacob's name to Israel and he becomes the father of Israel. And you're going to see here tonight he has 12 sons who become all the children of Israel. Who then have children and they are now the tribes of Israel. 
And the 70th week of Daniel, called the date of Jacob's trouble, is for the Jews. As a matter of fact, it's to do a couple of things. It's to wake up the Hebrew and it's to shake up the heathen. God is going to do that during that 70th week of Daniel known as the tribulation. Well, I'm not going to say anything more about it if you missed the recent study. We do have a CD burner that's on the way. I'm really excited about that. So we're going to start burning CDs and having those out there. And, and that prophecy series we just went through will be available soon. Verse 28. Jacob did so and completed her week. That is the seven years. And he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. So now Jacob's got them both. He's got Leah and he's got Rachel. And it tells us that Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. And so Jacob went into Rachel also. And indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. How uncomfortable must that family have been? And he served with Laban for another seven years. So the deal was this. You serve seven years, you get my daughter. Although he meant his daughter Leah. So he gives him Leah and he says, Now if you want Rachel too, you've got to work seven more years, but I'll go ahead and give her to you. So they all move into their nice, comfortable little family home. Jacob with Leah and Rachel and Zilpah, and, or, or Bilhah and, and what's the other one? Zilpah, yeah. So he's got the four women, the two wives and the two maids, and they're all one big dysfunctional family. And they're not having a good time. In fact, again, verse 30 says he loved Rachel more than Leah. But watch what happens in verse 31. It tells us first half of the verse, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. That word unloved is hated. It's not unloved. Hated. How long, I wonder, did that take? Because in verse 30, just one verse before, he loved Rachel more than Leah. So he had at least some sense of responsibility, duty, affection maybe for Leah. But he loved Rachel more. Now, Leah is hated. Why is that? Well, folks, first of all, it's not God-ordained polygamy. The Bible just tells us like it is. It explains to us the way things were. It doesn't say that this is okay. God works through it anyway. God has his plan. But man is messing up here. And polygamy just doesn't work. Nor does trying to serve two masters. Jacob has two women... But he loves Rachel more than Leah. And then the next thing you know, Leah is hated. And Jesus taught us, a man cannot serve two masters. Neither can a person love two spouses. The truth is our hearts are built to love monogamously. Our hearts are built to love one man with one woman for one life. That's the way we were created. One person in the man-woman relationship, loving the other person, that's how we're wired. We cannot serve more than that. I bring this up just to share for a moment. The first question that comes to mind, and honestly, when I counsel couples who are, who are having marital strife or marital struggle, the first thing I think of, is there someone else? Is there a third party involved? It's amazing to me how often that's exactly what's happening. Strife, struggle in a marriage because someone in the marriage, and there may not even be an affair going on, but someone in the marriage is finding from maybe a secretary at work a bit of understanding that they don't feel like they're getting at home. Now when I, when I talk to her, she listens to me, but I come home and my wife, she doesn't listen to anything. She's too busy taking care of the kids and cooking and doing all that stuff. Or the woman who has a man who just seems to really understand where she's coming from. He's, he's really compassionate 
And he really says all the right things while her dumb husband just sits home and watches TV and never really listens to a word she says. And suddenly, in a marriage relationship, one of the two is trying to serve two masters. Trying to love two people. To, to be committed to the spouse, yeah, but to find their needs fulfilled in someone else, it never works. When our attention gets divided, folks, we end up with Jacob Syndrome. We will love one and hate the other. It's human nature. That's what happens to us. The problem, by the way, is not interaction. Now, I, you need to know, just as a pastor, where I, I stand on this. We haven't even really talked about this with the elders. But here's my bottom line. Especially in ministry, I don't think that a man has any right being one-on-one -on -one with a woman who is not his wife. Ever. Ever. Billy Graham was once asked the question after his long run of ministry, very, very public ministry, how he maintained such a healthy marriage. And he said, simple, I am never alone with another woman. The only woman I am ever alone with one-on-one -on -one, is my wife. Which is why, ladies, you will never have a one-on-one -on -one counseling session with me all by ourselves. Cheryl will be there. Or someone else will be there. But it's just common sense. Because you get into these counseling relationships and what begins as interaction turns into intimacy. Interaction is not the problem. Men and women relating to each other, we need to be able to do that. And ladies, don't feel like you can't talk to me. That's fine. <laughs> I'm not saying don't talk at all. Get away. I'm a pastor. Can't talk to a woman. <laughs> I'm just saying you, you so quickly can move into those danger zones. And for me, a rule of thumb is not to be alone. And, and I, I pronounce that for any leader in this church. For each one of our elders. That they will never be alone one-on-one -on -one with a woman unless that woman happens to be their wife. Then it's okay. They can be alone with her as much as they want. Matter of fact, I encourage it. It's not interaction that's the problem. It's intimacy. Now some people, and I've talked to guys who have said this, especially in youth ministry several years ago, a guy would say, well, how am I supposed to do ministry? If I can't meet one-on-one -on -one with that girl who's just broken up over losing her boyfriend, how am I supposed to do real ministry? Wasn't Jesus alone? Uh, Jesus was alone with the woman at the well, right? That's right, he was. He was Jesus, though. You're not. <laughs> Which is why, again, leaders in this church will always be asked never to counsel people of the opposite sex alone. Flip real quickly in your Bibles over to the book of Titus. I want to show you something that I think is a prescription here for the way it should be done. The healthy way that a church body, a church fellowship is supposed to function. Book of Titus. It's before Philemon and right after 2 Timothy over in your New Testaments. Page 192 <laughs> in my Bible. The letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 2. I just want to read for a second and see if you sense or get the same thing that I got when I read through this. Titus, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Titus is a pastor, and Paul is writing to this pastor to give him advice, sound advice, of how to lead a church. And he says the following. He says, but as for you... Chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? Verse 4, So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. What is the role of the older woman in the church to encourage the younger woman? A great role. What is the role of the older man in the church to encourage the younger man? Read on. 
to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that, why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be with the young women. No, it doesn't say that. Urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourselves to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. It's clear to me. Older women, teach the younger women. Show them how to behave. Show them how to love. Show them what it means to have a long-term marriage and what that looks like. But nowhere in Scripture are you going to see Paul saying, Older men, I want you to get together one-on-one with those younger women and counsel them. It's just stupid. We are wired, folks, one man for one woman. And when one man gets with one woman who is not his only wife, he begins to get messed up wiring-wise and can very easily head that direction. I don't know if you've heard this, but the number one reason why pastors fall the number one sin among pastors and churches is sexual sin. Number one. It's not drinking. It's not drugs. It's not grand theft auto. It's sexual sin. Because the pastor so easily gets involved in these counseling relationships. And it's inappropriate. And it shouldn't happen. Well, back to Jacob's story. Verse 28 of Genesis 29. Jacob completed her week. He got Rachel also. Laban gave him Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. Okay, going on. Verse 31. Verse 31. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved or hated, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. So she named her first son Reuben, which means, look, a son. It's a great name for a boy. Look, a son. That's what Reuben means. Verse 33, Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated. Some of your Bibles still say unloved. It's hated. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, He has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. Simeon, the second son, means the Lord has heard. Now Leah's on a roll. She's just getting going. She conceived again, verse 34, and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And therefore he was named Levi and Levi means joined. Do you see what Leah is doing? She's doing something that many women do. I can't get him to love me. Maybe if I bear him children... He'll love me. Maybe if I'll have more kids for him. Maybe through having kids, he'll become connected to me. And so Leah comes along and says, Oh, I'm having a son. See, look, a son. Jacob, look, a son. Do you love me now? Jacob, look, the Lord is hurt. We have a second son. Are, are, we, are we together now? Oh, Jacob, our third son has come. Are, are we joined yet? By the fourth son, Leah's starting to figure out it's not working. He's not loving her anymore just because she's bearing children. Verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and, and she said, This time, I will praise the Lord. This time it's not going to be about me and my husband. That's not working. So I'm just going to choose to praise the Lord. She named him Judah 
And Judah means praise. It's also interesting that out of the name Judah, out of praise, will come the line of Jesus. For Jesus comes through Judah's line. And then she stopped bearing. Poor Leah. She wants nothing more than for her husband to love her. Folks, ladies, the best thing a woman can do whose husband is unloving is focus on the Lord who does love you, who will always love you. Instead of seeking your husband's praise, Leah, instead of seeking her husband's praise, chose to praise the Lord. Well, verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 1. Now watch this. Jacob's trouble continues. This is not the day of Jacob's trouble, but Jacob is in trouble. He's now had four sons by the lesser of his two wives, if we can call her that. Verse 1 of chapter 30. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, whom he loved. His anger burned against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And Jacob gives the right answer. In fact, he gives a key to marriage. The perfect answer for any marital struggle is for the husband to recognize that he is not God and for the wife to recognize he is not God. And for the husband to recognize that the wife is not God either. One of the greatest problems that we have in marriages today is trying to seek our fulfillment in the other person who is not capable of completely fulfilling our needs. The other person in the marriage is human too. Cheryl and I had a pre-marriage counselor who said, you know what you need to focus on in a marriage? You need to both give 100%. Not 50-50. You need to give 100-100 so it overlaps because there are going to be days where you can only give 30, Rick, and she's got to give the other 70. And I thought, oh yeah, that sounds really good. The further into marriage we got, the more I thought, that's stupid because there are many days where Cheryl and I are like giving 20-20. <laughs> that's the best we can do, which adds up to 40% and we're lacking 60%. The mathematics of our marriage is going haywire. It doesn't work. Much as I love my wife, she cannot fulfill what is the deepest need of my heart. Much as she loves me, I cannot be for her what she needs in this world. Only the Lord can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Jacob says it. Am I in the place of God? You want something from me. I can't give it to you. I can't make it happen. Only the Lord can do that. And I'll tell you what, the most healthy, the most effective, the most wonderful marriage is the marriage where God provides 100% of the time. Where my focus is not on what my wife can do for me, but my focus is on the Lord and loving Him and serving Him. And in so doing, suddenly I have it to give to my wife as well. Only God can satisfy. Only He can fulfill. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. And she said, Here's my maid, Bilhah. This is Rachel speaking. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as his wife. Jacob now is up to three wives. And Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan, which means vindicated or, or judgment. Positive judgment, judgment in her favor. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again, and Jacob bore a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister. 
And I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali, which means my wrestling. My wrestling. So here's Leah giving four kids. And now Rachel can't get any kids. So she gives her maid, Bilhah, to be a wife. So that she can have kids by her maid, which was customary. That often happened in the day. And Jacob's head is just spinning. Who am I sleeping with tonight? I don't know. Just point me in the right direction. Whichever bed. Who am I with? You know, tell me where to go. It goes on. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Except the four wives. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad, which means two things. It either means fortune has come, or better yet, the reinforcements have arrived. <laughs> My army is back on track. Now I'm fighting again. Now I'm going head to head with Rachel. I've got another son. Ha ha, Rachel, you didn't get it. I'm, I'm back ahead of you again. Leah's maid Zilpah then bore Jacob another son, a second son. And then Leah said, happy am I, for the women will call me happy. And so she named him Asher. And Asher simply means happy. No, it doesn't stop there. The, the competition is just heating up. The plot is getting thicker along with the pregnant women. Verse 14. Now, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. What's the deal with the mandrake? Well, a mandrake is a small reddish fruit. Something about the size of a strawberry, but looking like a little apple. And the mandrakes that were very rare, but, but would grow from time to time in the Middle East, were valued in the culture as a fertility drug. They, they believed that if you ate mandrakes, it, it was like an aphrodisiac, and it, it helped you to bear children. So Rachel's watching all this childbearing going on. She gave her own maid to Jacob so she could have kids. But when that didn't work, because now she's got Leah and, what is it, Leah's... Zilpah? Yeah, Leah and Zilpah now. So she's working one on two and, and Rachel's thinking, I've got to have some kids myself. I've got to do something here. Reuben goes out to the field and finds these mandrakes. And Rachel says, um, Leah, I think I could have some of your mandrakes. And Leah knows exactly what she's up to. Exactly what she's doing. Listen to what she says. Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she, Leah, said to her, Rachel, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? There's a lot of bitterness there. Leah is still looking at Rachel and going, You ripped off the husband that my father gave me. Leah's hurt by this. And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, Therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. They cut a deal. Tell you what. Here's the deal, Leah. Give me some mandrakes and you can sleep with Jacob tonight. Unbelievable. When Jacob came in from the field, poor dumb Jacob in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me for surely I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. I mean, what else could he do? Poor Jacob. What a mess. Verse, where we, where are we? 17. God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. That's not really why God gave him his wages. But by the way, she named him Issachar. Issachar means wages. Paid for. I paid for this one with those mandrakes. 
Got my husband in. I got pregnant. God honored my my actions here, which is not what happened. He didn't honor her actions. Well, verse 19, Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Listen to this. This is tragic. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. She's still playing the game. She's still thinking, oh, if only I can have enough children, my husband will love me. And it just doesn't work. Well, she named him Zebulon. Zebulon, by by the way, is number 10 of all the sons of Jacob. And afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah, who worked on the railroad all day long. Verse 22. (laughs) Sorry. This is bad. Verse 22. (laughs) Let's just keep moving. Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her, and he opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And listen to what she named him. Joseph. Saying, may the Lord give me another son. Oh, this is interesting to me. May the Lord give me another son. In other words... She gives birth to this child. And ladies, think about this. Guys, think if you were a a son born to your mom and what your name basically meant was, oh, I hope I have another one. In other words, great, this is great. Lord, give me another son. I just need as many as possible. I got a competition here. I'm a little behind, Lord. Give me more kids. That's what Joseph's name means. Give me more kids. Add to me. Add more to me here. Give me more. This is a mess. This whole thing is a mess. And folks, what you see in the story of these wives and these servant girls and all these 11 sons so far is the beginnings of the people of Israel. (laughs) Is that amazing? This is not the story I would have written for the people of Israel. This is not the background I would have given. It would have been a pure, chaste woman married to the man and they would have ridden off into the sunset and then begun to have children the right way, the proper way. And each child would have a very beautiful name. In fact, as you look through these names, I was really disappointed. I was thinking, this would be great, some really cool names. The names are all about backbiting and bitterness and fighting and proving who's the better wife. And this is the background of Israel. And I tell you this to say one thing about these people. The people of Israel are a people who are graced by God. They are as human and messy as any messy human being that's ever walked the face of the planet. But God chose them. They are chosen because of the will of the Father, not because of the behavior of the forefathers. Flip real quickly to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Something interesting to note here. I'm going to read you this, and I wanted to go on through the end of the chapter, but we'll we'll stop we'll stop after this tonight. Ephesians chapter one. Paul is writing. And I want to read a few verses to you and show you that there's a change. There's something that happens. Ephesians one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. And who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I read any further, what's Paul's background? What is Paul? He's a Jew. He's Jewish. He is of the people of Israel. 
Okay? Listen to what he writes. Blessed be God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Who's us? Who's the we? Now we read that today and we assume He's talking to Christians. I'm not sure that He is yet. Read on. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to, the, to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And then you could draw a line right there. Because I believe those first 12 verses, Paul is talking in the framework of a person who is a Jewish believer in Christ. We are the ones who were predestined. We were chosen from the very beginning of the world. And in the end it says, to the end, verse 12, that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Who were the first to hope in Christ? I'll tell you who the first to hope in Christ was. Abraham. Abraham was the first to hope. Actually, you know what? You could probably go all the way back to Eve, actually. The first to hope in Christ. Because she was the one who God said, through your seed, I will destroy the work of Satan. But Abraham was given the promise. The people of Israel. They're the ones who were the first to hope in Christ. The Jews. Because they were longing for the Messiah long before any of us came along. Long before the Gentiles were opted in. Before we were grafted into the place where Israel is, listen, verse 13, Paul says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. I think Paul's talking to two groups of people. He's saying, hey, we Jews, we have the inheritance. We are the, we're the chosen ones, predestined from the beginning of the world to be the ones through whom Christ would come. And guess what? You also, having believed in Him, are part of that greater family as well. You're part of the deal. It is absolutely amazing to understand, gang, that out of the mess of Jacob and his wives, out of all these kids and this bitter battling back and forth, out of that mess, God grew the people of Israel. And through the people of Israel, God brought Jesus Christ to the praise of His glory. Well, what's the big deal? Because that's exactly what God does with you and me. In spite of our bitterness and our backbiting and our history, in spite of the sin that is inherent in our lives, in spite of the mess that we make of things, God reaches in and says, I want to grace you. 
I want to make you so much better than you could possibly have ever imagined. And so we'll continue next week as we talk about working out our salvation in fear and trembling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you so much and we have no right even to claim you as our Lord. It just stuns me, Father, when I stop and and even try to ponder the depth of your grace, the riches of your love for us. But I am so thankful. We look at, at the mess of Jacob's family and yet we know that you loved Jacob, that you loved his wives, that you loved his children and through them you made a great people. Not because they were good Not because they were clean, not because they did things the right way, but simply because you love them. And in so doing, you bring glory to your name. Lord, would you remind us that we are loved? Sometimes, Father, we can feel hated like Leah or jealous like Rachel. We can in our own lives make a mess of things like Jacob, but we're loved. And that is a gift so great that we have all eternity to thank you and praise you for. And we do love you too, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.